Good morning, Figgy Goddess, and welcome to another episode of the My Figgy Life podcast. I'm so excited to talk to Tanya Marie Dubay today, and she helps women thrive in business and life after narcissistic abuse. If you are unsure about all the technical medical explanations and definitions of narcissism, narcissistic abuse and gaslighting, be sure to go back to our episodes with Dr. Chelsea Brooke-Cole and Dr. Amelia Kelly. In case you find yourself not quite understanding maybe everything that we're talking about, if you want to know more about those technicalities and the different types and the definitions, then those are the episodes for you before you listen to this one. But I can't wait to introduce our guest, so stay tuned. Welcome, goddess, to your sacred space. This is my Figgy Life podcast, where we openly discuss life's wins and losses on our journeys to self-discovery. This is your best life. This is your Figgy Life. And now, here is your host, Jean. Welcome back, goddess. And I want to introduce our guest to you today, Tanya Marie Dubay. She was born into the foster care system, living in eight homes by the age of two and living as a homeless street kid on and off for six years from 12 to 18. Tanya Marie Dubay is a show host, a motivational speaker, published author, and an online educator. In 12 weeks, she helped women who have been struggling with narcissistic abuse shift their paradigms so they can raise their vibration, heal their past, get on track, and create a massive impact. She teaches women like herself to understand and overcome narcissistic personality disorder abuse and use this knowledge as fuel using a unique blend of Western psychology, Eastern philosophy, and mindset and spiritual development strategies so they have the fundamental tools to create a great life and business for themselves and transform the lives of others after abuse. She's trained as a results coach with Tony Robbins and is certified as an advanced belief clearing practitioner. She has been coaching for 30 years with an extensive educational background in psychology and is completing her MA in metaphysical sciences. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. This is going to be really fun. Yeah, I have so many questions for you. And I always think, and I think we were just talking about that before we started recording, is how many of us unfortunately have these stories, but we don't always have the support system that we need to get through it or to get to the other side. I'm a firm believer that I will always be part of the recovery and the healing process, but there definitely is these different phases that you find yourself in where you're still kind of struggling to make sense of it all where you are and what's up from down so we're going to talk a little bit about your story and I also want to talk about rise but before we get there I'd love for you to share with us your I guess foundations of narcissists and narcissistic abuse and I think the starting point would probably be your mother's. So to realize that as a child is really complicated and difficult. I mean, I, I, I for myself know I've known about the word narcissism for a long time, but what narcissistic abuse is, it only really became clear to me recently. So how did you realize that that was what had happened with your relationship with your mother? And what kind of trigger points were there for you to understand that, oh, well, I think 
this is my story. I was born right into the foster care system, right? So she already couldn't, you know, take care of me. But I mean, that was something different in my mind, my whole life. She was just not capable. By the time I got into the eighth foster home when I was two years old, I spent a lot of time with this family. They fought to keep me. We went to court every single year so I could stay in that house and not be moved around. I was very, very lucky. And the foster father there and the foster mother became like my parents. But the foster father became like my like my father. Like we were so very close. And he used to sit me down all the time and he would say, you know, it's not her fault. She's struggling with addiction, you know, alcohol addiction, drug addiction. She's very young when she had you. She'd already put another child up for adoption before me. You know, so there was like a lot there for her to, to unpack. And I think because she grew up in foster care as well, and she did grow up in like 18 different homes and it was really difficult for her, you know. So, so I always thought of her like that. And then, of course, I was very academic and I was everyone thought I was going to be a lawyer when I was older because I loved reading and I'm a good debater and all of that stuff. But he used to sit me down and he would just say, you know, like, you need to look at this realistically. Like, this is all that she could give you. I went through my life believing that. When I turned 10 years old, she got married to this man who ended up being a pedophile and he was physically and emotionally abusive, psychologically abusive. And I only lived there for two years before the two of them had beat me up bad enough that I ended up leaving when I was 12. Um, I ran away with $18 in my pocket and I started to live on and off the street from 12 to 18 years old, just trying to finish school. I was a straight A student and my education meant the world to me. Like I didn't fully understand her psychosis. Like I knew she had mental health issues as well. And I would expect that from the life that she had, right? I would expect that she had a hard time dealing with all the emotional stuff, especially she was born in 1953. There's not like there was a ton of help psychologically. And most people were still of the mindset that if you have a therapist, there's something very wrong with you. So people avoided therapy, right? Traditional therapy. But, you know, so I just expected, I don't know, I kind of took it. I just took it like for whatever, like for what it was, right? Like then... I started learning about narcissism because I had been in relationships, intimate relationships with with people who fit this bill. And I was in university and I was I got onto the section of personality disorders. You know, it's very vague until you until you specialize. Right. So personality disorders. And uh, there was like a small little paragraph on it. So I associated that with my intimate exes. But it wasn't until I started doing these kinds of like I, I run that interview series, Unbreakable Women. So in that interview series, I have people coming from all over the world. And now I've interviewed over 300 people, and many of them had narcissistic mothers. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, a narcissistic mom. Like, I just never even thought about it like that. And then people started to give me their definition of, of what they experienced, their definition of what a narcissistic mother was. What would they tell you? What is their definition of that? So it was like the constant competition, constant competition. And this was my mom. Like, I remember one time when I was 11, she had said I was never allowed to have people over. I wasn't allowed to go anywhere to anyone's house. Like, it was really weird. I just thought that was my mother. But she one time allowed me to have a whole bunch of my friends over. So here we are, you know, I invite all my friends over. I'm super excited to have my friends over. I live in a very scary house, but I've got my friends, right? So so they come over and my mom puts me to work cleaning the house while they're there and she dresses in my clothes and now she's hanging out with my friends at the kitchen table talking about my life with them. Like, it was just so weird. And I remember it's always stood out to me as strange, but I never thought 
that like I know narcissistic partners are very competitive, but they pick you for different reasons. Your parent has you, you know, so it's different. I never, I never associated the two, but so there was the competition was awful, right? She was constantly competing with me, tearing me down, making me feel like I was never good enough for anything that I could never do anything. Right. But remember that I only spent a very small period of time with her. So I was comparing her with my foster mother a lot. And I thought this, something's not right. And I used to say it all the time. This doesn't feel right. Something's off. This isn't like nanny and papa's house. And that used to make her nuts. It was setting me up to fail all the time. You know, like it didn't matter what it is that I was doing, but she was just setting me up to fail. You know, she would say she put like my lunch in my bag and then I'd go to school and I'd not have anything to eat all day because she didn't do it. Um, She would take me to school and then fight with me in the hallway. And then I was late for my class and then I would get in trouble for it. She would call me a liar. You know, she would do these horrible things to me and then tell our entire family, you know, her side of the family, that I was this horrible kid who did all these things to her. There was one time when I think I was 15 years old, she had put me in this weird, weird group home, really weird group home with all these kids that were like, like really bad mental health issues, like all kinds of crazy stuff. And so she puts me in there. She has me almost arrested and thrown into this place. I was 15 years old, around 15, 16 years old. Anyway, so I ended up running away from this place. I got out of there. I had to break into her house to get my belongings because she wouldn't give them to me. So all I did was, I. <laughs> this is so bad, I ended up taking a window off, climbing in through the back window, taking things that belonged to me, putting the window back perfectly and leaving. That's it. And she told everybody that I stole all these things from her. Like, it was just so much, but I always just attributed it to my mother having mental health issues. I never, ever knew. If you go back to my interviews, even two years ago, you would never hear me say my mother was a narcissist. Like, this is new information for me, relatively. And it's scary, though, because... Because I think two things have happened in society. You know, unfortunately, we have this thing called social media and we have this thing called Dr. Google. And (laughs) there have been, I feel personally, a lot of instances where things like the word narcissist, like gaslighting, have become almost conversational if you don't like somebody or you're having a, oh, he's a narcissist or she's a narcissist or they're gaslighting you. And it almost takes away from what the victim has suffered Mm -hmm. because it's really such an incredibly emotionally and mentally, psychologically debilitating thing to go through. I don't know about you, but I still have triggers and I still have, I think I will always have some form of PTSD about it. You were talking about the criticism, the things that she would tell you. You're a liar. You're this, uh, this happened. Almost like they're picking things. Completely rewriting yes. history. Completely yes. rewriting history. And yeah. It's almost like they are in the meanest, most verbally abusive way possible, accusing you of the things that they are doing, that you have seen them done, that you experience them doing, but they do it so well that you end up believing you are the person that cannot handle criticism you're overly sensitive there's something wrong with you did you have this experience too oh my gosh yeah this is a woman who looked me right in my face and told me that she should have had an abortion with me and then when i brought it up years later it's funny because when you don't know you're in a narcissistic relationship you're looking at them like you're trying to use logic and reasoning trying to get through to them but narcissists don't have logic and reasoning literally like 7 year old children who have the psychological capacity of a 7 year old child so it's constantly revenge 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 right they got to get you back get you back 
So yeah, my whole entire life was her saying things to me that were horrible. And I wouldn't repeat them because I didn't want people to think my mother was like this. It was embarrassing. But yeah, the rewriting of history was outstanding, even as she was dying. Right before she found out that she had breast cancer, she was 47. She had called me up. I think I was 25 or 27 years old when she called me and we had been estranged for a really long time. She started to talk to me about her breast cancer and the journey that she had just embarked on. And so, you know, I decided just to squash everything and just be there for her. At some point in her two-year journey from diagnosis to death, she brought up stuff in our past. As I saw her decline, for me, it was just like, I wasn't even going to go there because I just didn't know if she was going to live. It just wasn't important enough to me to ever bring up in that situation. But she brought it up and we got into a conversation about it. I didn't have very much emotional control at the time. <laughs> like she could get me pretty angry pretty fast. But she actually said that none of those things had happened. And she said that she would never apologize to me. She said those words, you will never get an apology out of me. And I thought, wow, wow. And what I took that to mean was that I am not good enough for this woman to give me an apology. I took that in and it sat with me and it sat on me. My entire self-worth was wrapped up in whether or not my mother wanted me. My entire self-worth was wrapped up in, in how I could get straight A's all the time because that at least made her pay attention to me. Like my self-worth was just in the wrong places. And so when she said this to me, it was like someone took a knife to my heart and just twisted it. And I was devastated. And I thought, she's going to die without ever saying sorry for any of the things she did. You know, she practically handed me over on a silver platter to her pedophile husband. And this woman was saying she would never apologize to me. And I thought, wow. And then she was on her deathbed. I got a phone call from her and she had said that my, my mother had apologized on her deathbed and wanted her to tell me that. Now, whether it's true or not, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say it's true because my aunt wasn't involved in all of the stuff like that. It was interesting. Once my mother passed away, you know, there was nobody left to be accountable for all the stuff that she had done to me. So I had to just like bury it with her. You know, all these years later, hearing women talking about it, there was one woman that I found online who was just all she does is talk about parents abusing children, you know, like when they're narcissists. And so I happened to pick up, like it came across my feed on Instagram. I can't remember her name, but holy moly, everything she was talking about, I was like, oh, that's my mother. <laughs> that's my mother. And that's my mother. And that's my mother. Like it was crazy. As I started to decide for myself, spiritual development has been relatively new in my life. I started a spiritual practice seven years ago. Now I teach these spiritual principles in my work. But before that, it was 30 years of teaching mindset and personal development or at the time it was like 26 years of me teaching just that alone. And so I'm huge on going in deeper, as deep as I can to know who I am and what it is I want has been the clearest path to inner peace and happiness for me. I just decided that if it doesn't align my thinking or my language is not aligning with what I say that I want, that I have to figure out why. And this was no different with my mother, right? With my mother passing away and all these residual feelings, you want to know when they came back up? Years later, when I had my first child, and I was holding my baby up, and I thought, oh my gosh, I was this little, she put me in foster care. I was this small, like I couldn't even believe it. So all these feelings came back up. And that's what happens when you don't deal with trauma from narcissistic abuse, or you don't have a way to look at it that empowers you and liberates you. After she had passed away, mm. how did you deal with all of these kind of unresolved emotions? Because now you know you don't have anybody to be angry at anymore. And you don't have 
anybody to question or even to talk about to your psychiatrist or psychologist or spiritual mentors saying, I don't understand. I don't understand why they did this. And I think death is such a finality and those almost secrets and the whys are buried with them. How did you move through that? And how did you work through that? All I was dealing with when she died, all, all like it's nothing, but all I was dealing with was was the physical abuse, the emotional abuse, the sexual abuse, like, like that was enough. Like I just didn't, you didn't have the capacity for anything more in no, any way. And I hadn't <laughs> learned about, you know, I think I was 36 when I learned about narcissistic personality disorder. I'm 48 now. It was relatively new, right? So when she passed away, it, I didn't deal with it. I buried it down. I, the year that my mother died is also the year I had my very first miscarriage. It was also the year that I got married. It was the best year I ever had at school because I used to bury every everything down and throw it all into my work. So I did not deal with it at all. If you're a high performer like I am, which I imagine you are as well, you know, with your business and everything you've been through and your past <laughs> credentials, what you're doing before you have this business, when you're a high performing woman, you learn and you're a fast processor, you learn to just shove it down and move on because it's what's worked for you. That's what you think. You think it's worked for you. And then all of a sudden, you know, something happens in your life and everything comes bubbling back up to the surface. And now it's like a tornado. It's like, a tornado. It's like an absolute tornado. And now you. not only do you yeah. have to deal with the thing that just happened, but now you've got all of this other stuff coming up from your entire life. It was so, it almost knocked me right off my feet. So that's when I had my daughter and I realized, you know, that's the age I was when she put me in foster care. And then I realized I had to deal with it. And I went through postpartum depression. It was like a whole bunch of things, you know. You also find when you had kids, the same happened to me. A lot of more intense things came up for me when my daughter was born. And one of the big reasons for that was, I think of the many, one of the big challenges I had was I could never understand why my abuser wasn't taken away, why we still continue to live mm. with him. And you don't ask a narcissist questions because you are always wrong and they always suffered for you and struggled for you. And, and one of the things I was told was when you have kids, you will understand. And I think as toxic and as weird and as unsensical as that is, somewhere in my subconscious, I thought, okay, it's going to be okay. One day this is going to make sense to me. There's going to be this like aha moment and I'm going to understand why I wasn't better protected. And then my daughter was born and I've had this immense sense of rage because I just felt like now I understand even less. <laughs> yeah why I would have stayed in that yeah. situation. Yeah. Well, my stepfather, you know, I ended up writing my mother like a 10 page letter when I was 17 years old, begging her to please leave him and, you know, to leave my stepfather. And, you know, we take my sister. I'm 17 years old. I've got all the energy in the world. I'll get three jobs to take care of us. But these are all the things he's done to me. And I came forward to her with what he had done to me. And they I detailed what I was going to do. I was going to sue him. I was going to take everything he had. I was going to liquidate all his assets. Someone gave me that phrase. <laughs> so I was going to like, do this is what I said in this letter, but you want to know what they did. They ended up packing up their entire house and moving away from Alberta to Arizona without telling me. 
So here I was knocking on the door and the next door neighbor came out and she said, you know, what are you doing here? And I told her and she said, well, no, they moved. It was like, how much more can these people do to me? I know it was crazy. And so she decided to stay with him. And so I was like you, I was wondering like how, like what universe do I live in where she's still married to him after what he's done? It was insane. And then I felt compelled to keep a relationship going with him and her a little bit, but him too, because I had my sister and my only way to have a relationship with my sister was to go through these people. So it was crazy. So when my daughter was born, I was so mad. I was so angry. Throughout my life, I have found myself in these, you know, narcissistic, intimate relationships and my anger was coming out there. I had the same thing. I couldn't control my anger. There are so many times that I am so severely disappointed and ashamed of myself. But I was going into I was choosing the wrong relationships for the wrong reasons. I was always repeating the types of relationships and examples that I saw. This is what a lot of abuse victims go through is this immense guilt and shame for reacting the way that we react in those relationships. And I just want to say that that's, yes, you're going to want to put yourself through that, but don't. You know, we live in this really weird society. Like I'm, I'm an actor. I grew up as an actor. I've been an actor since I was four years old in a school play. I did theater most of my adult life or my childhood years up until, you know, my early 20s. And then in my 20s, I did film and I did five films. And what they teach you in the acting world is very different from how, you know, what is acceptable as a woman in the world that we live in now. It is okay to have a real human emotional reaction to something that's happening to you. In the acting world, we were taught, don't you dare hold back on that emotion. Don't you dare hold back on showing all of the drama because in everything you're ever going to watch an actor be in, it's going to be some crazy moment in their life and they got to fight their way through it. And you got to see something real. It's how we relate. It's because it's how we feel. But the society that we live in says, as a woman, you know, don't you dare get angry. You're labeled a really angry person then and you can't be trusted. And as a woman, you're taught, you know, you got to keep yourself small. You're there to be kind of subservient to society. How dare you be all the things and nothing at all <laughs> or be nothing at all. You got to fight for more. Like it's constant and we can't seem to win with that. So when it comes to abuse, if you railed out, hit back, screamed back, said things to defend yourself, <laughs> called them out on their bullshit, whatever it is, you pat yourself on the back for standing up for yourself. Because I'm going to tell you something, narcissists in relationships with us, with women like us, they take every single thing that is pure and good about us and they flip it on its head like it's something horrible. Then they make us feel bad for being compassionate, right? They make us feel bad for being empathetic or to have empathic, you know, moments in our lives where, you know, we just deeply, deeply feel the emotions of other people. They prey on everything that is good about you. And it's why most women will turn around and say, that's it. I'm never going to get into another relationship alone. I feel the most safe when I'm isolated. It is the brainwashing that has taken over them. And this is the stuff that I help women work through. I don't, I don't ever want to see a woman being held down after a narcissistic relationship because it is all just brainwashing. If we can get through that part, then we can start to rebuild our lives. But I wanted to ask you one more thing about having kids, especially after dealing with narcissistic parents, do you feel sometimes that you're so completely focused on not doing that and not having that happen with your child that you almost overcorrect sometimes and you have to kind of catch yourself 
you know, when I became a mom, I had lost two babies. I'd had two miscarriages. I was in a terrible marriage. I know it was awful. The second one really did me in for sure. Both of them were traumatic, but the second one was really painful. Anyhow, so I decided I really want this baby. Now, I'd always thought I didn't want to have children, and it was because of my narcissistic mother. I didn't think I'd be a good mom. I didn't think, like, I thought I was going to ruin people, right? Like, I was just like, I don't know how to do this. It was exactly the same. Exactly. I was married to my husband for eight years before we even started talking. I had decided that because of my upbringing and the way things were, my understanding of psychology and human behavior, that I was taking on the role of a teacher now. And so I always tell my children, you know, if it wasn't for you guys, I don't even know what would have become of me because having children for me, for me personally, slowed me down, made me really look at my actions and my thinking and my behavior. You know, it made me find the love, you know, like it made me come from a place of love and trying to be the best example that I could be. So during my divorce, that was a pretty crazy relationship. And so when I left, it's everything to me in the world to make sure that my children are raised with knowing what healthy boundaries are. I didn't have those. To know how to stand up for themselves unapologetically with kindness and not feel guilty about it. That's huge. You know, that's massive to be able to just say no without feeling guilty or shame around just saying no if it doesn't work for them. I've spent my whole life with them. My oldest is now almost 18. Just making sure that I do this check-in with them every month. Well, not so much now that they're older, but when they were little up until they were both respectively, you know, around respectively around 10 years old. But I'd sit down with them every month and say, let's do a check in. You know, how am I doing as a mom? What can be better? What do you need more of with me? And they would say to me, you know, like you kind of flew off the handle about the thing the other day. And I'd say, you know what, I'm I'm so sorry about that. And I would explain and we would talk about it and work through healthy emotions. I don't know. I just wanted to raise them differently. Nobody in my childhood hugged me and kissed me and said, you're beautiful or you're so smart, or I love you. Like, I just didn't have that. You know, it was um, my my foster father only who was like that. So I wanted to raise them holding their hand all the time, touching their faces, giving them kisses, asking them where they're at in their mind, and then spending time learning about their development at their age before they had a chance to tell me what they were going through. So that way I would like meet them at the impasse and could prepare them for what's coming. So do I do that? Sometimes I think I do a little bit because I I guess what I'm trying to always balance out for myself, like internally, is how much my whole life I thought there was something so very bad with me, like so wrong with me, so awful about me. (laughs) Like I just, I decided for other people whether or not they were going to like me. You know, I just had such a poor self-image that that's what I find myself doing mostly with my children is I'll say and do something and then I've got to go back and see if I'm being crazy because that's what we were taught as children is that we're nuts. Like I'm crazy. I'm nuts. I don't deserve anything. I'm not worth it. You know, like how dare I repeat something and that didn't even happen like that anyway. (laughs) It's just come. It becomes a problem sometimes with discipline because kids do need discipline and safety, but I would I find myself often going back and going, oh, maybe I misread the situation. Maybe this wasn't as bad as it really, maybe I was too harsh. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't have said, it's this constant struggle. It always feels to me like you're on a a tightrope. You're balancing and then you're leaning more towards the left and more towards the right. And you're just trying to hang on. I try in a lot of situations to um, just hear the problem 
and then walk away. Like if I'm the one who's mad about something, I need, I just need to go collect my thoughts. I've learned this about myself. In order to be more of a responder and not a reactor, I have to be able to assess the situation. And maybe it is because, you know, I had a narcissistic mother. You tell me if you're like this, if it's, if it serves you just to stop and just reflect first. So that's what I do first. But I've always taught them too, that if you're going to do something and you know that it's not okay to do it, or you know that it's, it's like by definition of our family rules, you know, you've done something outside of that, that's going to get you in trouble, then you better own it or else why are you doing it? <laughs> so own it and let's talk about it. Don't be afraid of getting in trouble. So we go through a lot of that stuff too. Like there's a lot of talking and there's a lot of, you know, just working out what's, what's okay. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to, you know, not have it a hundred percent all the time. It's okay to not know what you're doing. It's okay to say you don't know, but whatever it is that you did, you got to own it and you got to show up to the table being okay with that. Tell us a little bit more about RISE. So RISE is my 12-week program. It's my signature program that I walk women through. The very beginning stages of going through narcissism, we tend to we tend to internalize everything the way that we were just talking about, even having a narcissistic parent. You know, but when you're going through a narcissistic breakup too, you internalize everything and you're in that narcissistic fog and you don't know how to get out of it. And you feel like you feel like that's it for you. You're done. You're constantly caught up with whatever the narcissist is gonna do next. You're still raising racing around the same way you did inside of the relationship. They're still getting to you and now they're doing even worse things because now you're separated. They have the children alone. Most narcissists, when they have their children by themselves, are not treating those children properly at all. And it usually goes against everything that the mother's trying to do. So it causes a ton of conflict. And I feel like narcissists, like real narcissists with their children, will hurt their children in order to get to the mom because it's all about the mom. It's all about the relationship and destroying that relationship. So when you go through rise, you know, which is all about reinventing yourself, impacting others, right, making a strong personal connection, and then embodying the lesson. That's what rise stands for. Like, I personally believe that getting through narcissistic abuse recovery does not have to take a long time. If you start to understand why you have this lesson and what the purpose of it was for your future, like if you're a spiritual person like I am, you know, then I have to look at all of my life lessons. We haven't even touched on most of the stuff that's happened to me in my life. I have to look at all of those lessons and think, why did all of this stuff happen to me? It's not my fault that it happened to me. I didn't ask for these things to happen to me, but they did happen. So what do I do now? What do I do with all of this information? Because the alternative, if I don't do that, is that I make it feel as though I wasn't worthy of love, of proper care, that I wasn't worthy of real relationships that actually like went somewhere in life that meant something meaningful. I was looking at everyone else thinking, why do they get all of that? And I don't. What's wrong with me? So that's the alternative to not walking down a path of trying to understand the lesson, knowing why you went through it and how you can use it for your life. It's funny when the children were younger and they were trying to walk their path through this and understand what was happening. My daughter said something along the lines of, this feels like a video game. Every level is going to give me a new, <laughs> every level is going to give me a new tool. And then that tool goes in my tool belt and then I'm running and running and running. And then the next thing happens. And then I get that tool and put it in my tool belt. And I was like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. When we can understand why these things are happening, it's almost like we can we can look at ourselves from a bird's eye view 
and see ourselves down there as something separate from the human experience, if you will. If you are spiritual, you believe things like you've chosen your parents and you chose your path. Now, the obstacles that happen on that path are still just obstacles. However, they're put in place at very specific times in your life, which is why you have to trust the timing of your life. But they're put there in very specific times in your life to give you tools for the next thing that's coming. So if you remember back when I said, you know, leaving high school, my guidance counselor gave me that university level, entry level textbook, asked me to read it. I resisted, I resisted, I resisted. I took it with me. And finally, like a year later, I started to read it. And then I would be at the bus stop and there would be a woman going through something. And I just read the psychology of it and I could teach it to her. So I would end up staying on a bus for like six stops past my stop because I was engaged in these conversations that were so fantastic. But that's what I really do believe, like through a lifetime of serious abuse, a lifetime of tons of adversity, that if I can now look at it like I've been given a master's degree or a PhD in adversity, that's why I went through it. I went through it so that I can have this life helping other women go through it so that they can also see that these are tools in their life that are meant to use for something else. We don't have to get caught up in the in the human experience of I'm not good enough. These low vibration thoughts of, you know, I'm not worthy or no one loves me or I'm not lovable or I should be isolated. I should be out of society. These are very low vibration, dark energy thinking, you know, and they're not yours. This stuff was put on you by your narcissist because that's how they feel about themselves. So once you understand that, that it's not yours, right? It's been put on you. You were taught to feel this way. If you think about it, how long a narcissist actually spends working on you, picking you apart, systematically dismantling you, it has become a career effort for these people to mess with your head like that. So if you can understand that, that this is not yours, you are just in the brainwashing fog of it all, you got to be able to give it back and now start focusing on why you got the lesson and what you're going to do with it. Once you do that and you get yourself busy in the reclaiming of your life, taking back control, pursuing the goals that you were too scared of pursuing before the narcissist came into your life, all of the things that picked you apart and made you feel like you were not good enough. If you can get into the action of that, you do not have the time for a pity party. You start to understand the whole purpose of everything that you've gone through. So this is what RISE does. From beginning to end, a 12-week program, I also offer, because it's a three-month program, I offer nine months of additional support after that. So you're not left by yourself wondering what now you're supposed to do with all of this stuff. So it becomes a group thing that I do every single month after that. But the first 12 weeks is an intensive program. It is designed to get you out of the brainwashing fog, to wake up and to start focus on the other stuff. What does that look like, the 12-week program? Is it like a session per week online or Is there exercises that you have to go through and some work that you have to do that, that you guide them through? Sure. So every single week I drop a video training and then that same week we have a like a live discussion about it. It's like a group chat. We can all get together. So that runs itself like that for 12 weeks. So you have me in your ear two times a week, you know, really getting clear on these fundamentals, you know, the, the grounding of what it is that you're building off of, you know, so that you don't fall back into old patterns of behavior. So that you don't fall back into old ways of thinking. Because I do believe that what you think is going to determine how you feel. And how you feel is going to determine what action that you take. So if this is all true, if we can just make that true, then that means that we really have to be in the energy of healing. The energy of moving forward. And I think, honestly, community is the best place for that because so many women that I've met in my you know six years of having an online business about narcissistic abuse recovery, 
so many women. It's shocking to me how I'll get on the phone with somebody and they'll they'll cry because they feel finally heard and seen and they really do believe they're going through this alone. There's no one in the world going through it like they're going through it. And narcissists are so textbook. They're like all the same. It blows my mind, you know, and of course it's like, a, I don't know, this has been like such a lesson for me too, having gone through so much of this, you know, talking with women and thinking, okay, there was a time when I thought I was alone too. Nobody understood what I was saying about this. What if somebody is not sure that they have been subjected to narcissistic abuse or that they are living with or are part of a relationship with a narcissist? Can they still come to your program and will there be kind of clarity for them in that? They'll love bomb you first. The love bombing is crazy and it feeds the lack of self-worth. The need for acceptance and validation is there for us as the victims of narcissistic abuse. We want someone to love us and, and to cherish us this way, you know, partly because we believe all the societal conditioning about relationships and not being whole by yourself, partly because no one's ever taught us to become empowered women, to stand on your own two feet intentionally, fulfilling, you know, your own dreams and goals, and then partly because because most people who go through narcissistic abuse grew up with something crazy in their lives that they had to learn serious survival skills with. And so we still carry this thread of like wanting to be accepted and validated. So the, the love bombing starts, that's absolutely crazy. And it's like a whirlwind and it's beautiful. And you feel like you met your, you met your soulmate. You know, they do that a lot. We're soulmates. We've lived lifetimes together. It's all very emotional and dramatic. <laughs> so there's that, you know, there are very clear markers about narcissists and whether or not you're with one. One is lack of empathy. Watch a really sad movie or like a true crime show or movie with them and watch their reaction when people are getting hurt. That's That was pretty eye-opening to me. It was a lot of laughing in an inappropriate moments. It was weird. Also, watch how they puff themselves up to be something that they're not when they're around other people. Watch how kinder, like how much kinder they are to strangers than they are to you. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to when you say that you want to hang out with a family member, you want to spend time with people who mean something to you. Watch how weird they get around that because it becomes a threat to them that you don't need them. Now you need other people too. <laughs> it's some, it's stuff like that. They want to control all the money. They, you know, they want to know where you are at all times. You know, they really try to to isolate you from family and friends by making it difficult every time you want to do something. They give you such a hard time that you stop asking. The same thing with asking them to do things. They don't like to do things. They want zero responsibility. They want to be able to do whatever the hell they want. You know, and the minute that you start asking them, you get a fight. So you stop. You, you learn to stop asking. And then the last thing that I'll point out is, um, it's not the last thing, but it's the last thing I'll talk about, is the gaslighting. As soon as you come to them and you say, I don't like that comment that you made about my face or my weight, or I don't like the thing that you said about me, you know, like you just kind of like downgraded every skill I ever had, like it's absolutely nothing, like it just made me feel bad or made me feel weird. Can we talk about it? That is the minute that they will start circling around you, making you feel like you're crazy or too sensitive, that you need to get yourself in check. If you find a woman texting them on their phone, how could you be looking at their phone like that? How could you second guess their, their, their reasons for talking to another woman? You're crazy. 
it's absolutely bonkers. They turn it around on you. So if you're wondering if you're with a narcissist, if any of those things, if you can identify with any of these things, you should be leaving. And you discuss all of these things in your 12-week program. There are tools and guidelines for doing this or helping them through this. This is the part that I don't teach. I mean, I can. This is the stuff that we can do in one-on-one conversations. You know, if you're at that point where you're still trying to get out, I know all about that and I know how to do it. I know how to do it carefully. So absolutely ask me about that because there's no there's no reason that I can't do one-on-one stuff like that on the side. The program itself gets you from the point where you're, you know, you're starting to really understand you've left. Now you understand that this is like maybe you're rebuilding your life. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's the third time you had to leave, like me. Maybe it's the seventh time. You know, they say it takes seven times fully to leave a narcissist. If you can do it in one shot, good for you. You learn the lesson. <laughs> you know, but some of us, we still second guessed ourselves and they drew, drew us back in. Or for some women, finances got them to go back. Or there was a pet that was left behind and they're threatening to kill it or hurt it somehow. There's all these things that narcissists will do that make a woman feel bad and want to go back. And if you're in a scary situation, then, you know, what you do is you, you know, you're going to have to, you know, find a, some way to make money on the side. And then you got to bank that money secretly. You got to, it's going to be a lot of stuff to get yourself out of that relationship if it's scary. Also, if your narcissist finds out when you're leaving, make sure you leave a few days before that. At the point where you're like, that's it. I need to take control over my life. This is crazy. How did this happen? Why is this happening? That's where you find me. And then I take it from there and then off you go. Where can our audience find you? First, you can look at my link tree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Tanya Marie Dubay. But you can also reach out to me at info at That's my email. You know, let me know what you're going through. And then we can get on a call and figure out what direction you need to go in. Because I've interviewed so many people in this area, so many healers and teachers. If it's not me, I can refer you to someone. And I think a referral is much better than just trying to find someone random on the internet. The other thing that you can do is you can download my freebie. You can get it at tanyadubay.com. And it's called Five Key Steps to Reclaim Your Life After Narcissistic Abuse. And it's the first five steps that you would take before, you know, you and I would work together. And if you didn't get that, don't worry, all the links will be in the episode notes for you. So you can easily link to Tanya Marie. Thank you so much for sharing all of this wisdom with us today. We're so, so grateful for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It flew by, didn't it? Wow. This was so much fun with you. I love seeing you. I love talking to you. Thank you so much. So remember, goddess, As always, everybody deserves to celebrate the goddess within. Until next time, I will see you soon on the My Figgy Life podcast. The My Figgy Life podcast is free to all of our listeners. It's not sponsored. And I would like to try to keep advertorials out of our episodes. It helps me so much when you support this podcast by sharing it with a friend who may need to hear some of these episodes or who may benefit from it. But mostly it helps us so much if you rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. Thank you so much for your support, Vicky Goddess.